Hello and welcome to Sammy's Midnight Hour. I am your host, Sam, and with me as always, my uh, co-host uh, and wife, Tish. Hello and, and uh, good uh, evening, everyone. Uh, tonight we're talking uh, about a uh, serial killer like we talked about last week. Um, his name's Herb Baumeister. He's from Indiana, um, also known as Herb, just Herb, uh, and the uh, I-70 Strangler. Um, uh, it says the number of victims, uh, from what I've got, it says between 8 and 16. Um, some reported that it was somewhere along the lines of maybe 50. Uh, the date of murders was between 1980 and 1996. Um his date of birth was April 7th, 1947. Uh, his victims were uh, Johnny Bayer, uh, 20 years old, uh, 28-year-old Alan uh, Broussard, uh, 33-year-old Roger Goodlett, uh, 20-year-old Richard Hamilton, um, 26-year-old Stephen Hale, uh, 31-year-old Jeff Allen Jones, 46-year-old Michael Kern, and uh, 31-year-old Man... Manuel Resendez, 31. Uh, his method of murder was strangulation. Uh, the location was between Indiana and Ohio. Uh, his status, at the moment he's not living, he committed suicide uh, to avoid arrest on July 3rd, 1996 in Ontario, Canada. So let's talk about his early life. Um, a lot of serial killers are just notorious to have... Uh, bad upbringings, but this is not the case uh, with Herb. Um, the oldest of four children, Ballmaster's childhood was uh, evidently normal. By the onset of adolescence, however, he began exhibiting antisocial behavior. Uh, later recalls the young um, Ballmaster playing with dead animals and urinating on a teacher's desk. As a teenager, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia but did not receive further psychiatric treatment. You know, that's kind of common, Sam, too, at that that time, mm -hmm. you know, back in that, that era of right. time. Usually it has something to do with animals and stuff like that. Yeah, like definitely. Wet definitely. bad, stuff yeah, like right, that. Right, right. Yeah. As an adult, he drifted through a, a series of jobs marked by a strong work ethic. This is strange, too. He had a huge work ethic. Yeah. Um, that was interesting, I thought. So but, I was able to lead the double live. Yes, yeah. yes. But also uh, by more increasingly bizarre behavior. And we're going to talk about that throughout this uh, this podcast. So hang, hang, hang tight. So uh, Herb was born April the 7th, 1947, to a doctor, uh, Herbert, and uh, of course his mother, Elizabeth, in Kerr Ives Butler, Tarkington area, Indiana. That was hard for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> a sister um, named... Um, Barbara was born in 1948, and two brothers followed after. So Brad was in 1954, and Richard in 1956. As the father's medical practice progressed, uh, he was an uh, anesthesiologist. Look, I got that word out. The family <laughs> eventually moved to an affluent Washington uh, township. Now, this is all in Indiana, right? Yes. Okay. Um, Herbert's childhood seemed normal, according to the book. And this book is uh, Where the Bodies Are Buried. Good, good book. I think Sam's read it. Yeah, very it's, good book. It's by uh, Fanny uh, Weinstein and Melinda Wilson. However, they continued. By the time he reached adolescence, he became a, it became very apparent that something about him wasn't quite right. Um, a close school pal named Bill Donovan recalled 
that Herb would fall into strange, just strange things. Often, he just often had weird thoughts, pondering on repulsive things. Like, he would, he would want to know the taste of human urine. After doing these strange things, uh, one morning on the way to school, he picked up a dead crow that had been hit by a car. And he shoved it in his pocket. This is during school. This is like you know, while I was on in his school. way to school. Yeah. Then while the teacher wasn't looking, he dropped it on her desk. This was just irresponsible and just just often this compulsive behavior was just it was notorious for his childhood. Um, Herb's behavior soon caught the attention of his father, who um, just. He sent him off for this mental evaluation. Being a doctor himself, he knew there was something wrong. Um, he had a lengthy series of tests. Eventually, again, was a di- he was diagnosed with schizophrenia or schizophrenic. Having two or more sided personality base. Now, this is important, okay? Having two or more sided uh, personality bases. However, there is no record of further treatment. This is so sad because had, yeah. had he had treatment... Maybe things would have turned out a little different. Yeah, you just, wow. Because his high school, North Central, focused on sports activities, um, the he was just an avid bookworm. Um, her, he just couldn't fit in. He just could not get into the in, I'm putting up quote signs, the in <laughs> crowd. Um, he tried to be one of the of the boys, you know, and, and he just, he didn't blend in. He was a strange, strange child. And this was recalled from this friend, this Donovan, uh, the friend of his. Yeah. He withdrew to himself and spent many hours alone as uh, for his interest in datings. The friend Donovan said he had zero, this is quoted, zero. I never saw him date. In his college years, um, he remained... Um, just ever so quiet and just very secluded. Uh, he dropped out his freshman year. He returned, and this is the thing: this man was smart. He yeah, had no reason. He high had, IQ. He had a very high Q. He had no reason that he would drop out. Right. Yeah. That. That's. Yeah. He dropped out of his freshman year. Returned um, for a semester here and a semester there, but throughout the next four years. He never graduated. He never graduated right. from college. Right. Um, nevertheless, though, uh, through his father's persistence, um, his father was a respected man in town. The Indianapolis Star, uh, the major newspaper, hired teenage Herb on as a copy boy. Um, Gary Donna, an advertising executive who worked for the paper, remembers that Herb was sensitive, kind of a sensitive kid, a uh, sensitive teenager. As to the way he was re- he was viewed and treated by the higher ups, he obsessively wanted to be somebody. He dressed well and was eager, but again, did not fit in. And that's always always seemed to be the case with him. He just never quite fit into anything. Right. Um, right. One odd incident occurred when Herb offered to drive Donna and his friends to the IU football game in hopes that he might become one of the gang. Mm. And this is where things get a little Wait bit a minute. odd, people. We didn't mention that he went to IU. Oh, yeah, we? he went yeah. to IU. We didn't yeah. mention that. Go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry, Sam. Go ahead. Yeah. And uh, anyways, he takes his friends to the IU football game in hopes that he might become one of the gang. When the day came, he showed up in a hearse, uh, probably acquired through connections with the hospital where his father worked. And with lights flashing, raced to the game, laughing all the way. Whew. People started pulling off the road, recalls Donna. He even wore a chauffeur's cap. 
Um, he thought, well, what he thought he was doing, he was thought he was being funny. Um, however, his friends and their dates wondered what, what kind of a, a, a nutbag was at the <laughs> steering wheel. Good grief. And the weirdness continues. I mean, the weirdness continues. Um, and this is in uh, Weinstein's and Wilson's book. It says, it wasn't long after he started working for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, another job that, that's kind of rumored that his father kind of secured for him, that Herb began ranting and raving at fellow employees for no apparent reason. Um, his tenure over the years just marked just odd, just very odd behavior, according to his former co-workers from the, the BMV. Um, one Christmas, he raised a lot of eyebrows by sending co-workers a card with a photo of him and another guy dressed in drag. Now, despite his in-house uh, personality conflicts and erratic deployment, the uh, bureau nonetheless noticed an apparent um, go get him attitude. That's the thing is that he was a real, like I said, very hard worker, very, very hard worker, and a lot of work ethic. Um, but, anyways, he had a really go get him attitude mixed with his high degree of intelligence. This man was very intelligent. It wasn't long after that that he earned a title as the program director at the BMV, where Others might have this point taken the challenge with an you know an ex an expert or ex exerted professionalism. Herb increased and flourished, so he really flourished there. Herb had displayed that those who knew him the characteristics he was he was just bizarre and had a bizarre sense of humor is what that's what coworkers are quoted in saying. So in Weinstein's book and Weinstein Williams' book, it says quote. While at the BMV, it took the form of urinating on his boss's desk. It was no secret around the office who the culprit was. Still, Herb somehow, now get this, Herb somehow managed to avoid being fired until this is what got him fired. He urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana. That seems to be a pattern, the whole urination thing. Mm-hmm, Definitely. Um, in November 1971, Herb had married uh, Julie uh, Sater in the United Methodist Church in Indianapolis. Julie was a college graduate and was introduced to him by a mutual friend. Uh, she was attracted to the tall, light-haired, boy-faced Baumeister. And in their initial chat, they discovered that they shared many things in common. They had you know, a lot of things in common. Both were Republican. Both yearned to have their own business one day. Julie quit her job as a high school journalism instructor in the latter half of the 1970s to concentrate on having a family. Besides, Herb was earning a decent wage at the BMV. Three children followed. Mary in 1979, Eric in 1981, and Emily three years later. When Herb was asked to leave the BMV, the ever-faithful Julie returned to teaching to supplement her husband's income. Through an assortment of odd jobs, he, would, he eventually wound up working for a thrift shop, and although he felt um, menial at first, although the, you know, the whole job felt kind of menial to him at first, he uh, soon realized the potential available in a place like that. He and Julie talked it over, and based on Herb's acquired knowledge of running such an outlet over the three years he worked there, decided to invest what money they had into their own store. They borrowed $4,000 from Herb's now-widowed mother, and in 1988, opened a Save-A-Lot, which I'm sure a few of you might have heard that in uh, Indiana. Save-A-Lot thrift in conjunction with the highly respected Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. Um, 
in Indianapolis. It was a charity benefiting the area's uh, families. The shop located on 46th Street sold used clothing, um, household goods, and a number of secondhand items. I think now it's like a food store. I right. think that save a lot is now. But would it be like a Goodwill? Would that? Sort it sounded of... like maybe maybe kind of like a like an off. Like an, well, like, okay, yeah, that's you know what, what I mean. kind of thought too. Okay. Um, the inventory technically belonged to the charity, which in turn received a con a contracted percentage of the proceeds. Shoppers found that Save a Lot tidy and offering only quality merchandise. It became a popular shop or a, a popular place to shop for families on a budget. In no time, Herb and Julie received high praises from the Children's Bureau, whose human cause greatly benefited from the couple's obvious management skills. Uh, in its first year, the store uh, earned fifty thousand dollars, which is not too bad for the year. Right. And right. back in nineteen eighty-eight. Right. Right. Um, soon they opened a second store, successful business pe- and successful business people. Now, in nineteen ninety-one, the Baumeisters moved from their middle-class home in the uh, into the fashionable Westfield District, nearly twenty miles from Indianapolis, in Hamilton County, where they bought on a contract an elegant Tudor-style home called Fox Hollow Farms. Uh, complete with four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and riding stable. Its 18 and a half acres provided the country tranquility in which Julie always hoped to be able to raise her children. The couple was living the so-called American dream on the surface. Herb always seemed to call the shots, and Julie always kind of went along for the ride, explains a, a friend of theirs named John Egloff. The, the Baumeister's one-time lawyer who felt Julie was forced to live in Herb's shadow. In the book, in Where the Bodies Are Buried, he discussed his perception of the couple. Wherever they disagreed, whatever they, whenever, it didn't matter what it was, whenever they disagreed about what should be done with respect to a particular matter, Herb would basically take over the conversation. He'd say, Julie, that's not uh, where, that's not where we're going to do. And Julie deferred uh, to Herb. But she wasn't happy about it. Um, more than once, the couple split up, and then briefly they went back together, and then they would split up. The house itself seemed to adopt attention within the within its walls, and this is something that I think in the documentaries that we've watched, they don't touch on that. Not a lot. They don't touch no. on that. That that not that household was not happy, and we're gonna. No. There's a lot more to this. So neighbors and business associates who entered the Fox Hollow Estate later recalled. The rooms of being cluttered and unkept. The Bellmasters, uh, they, they just lacked order. Or more appropriate, they just ignored it. Um, the once groomed grounds of the manor house became overgrown. Julie would often take the children to visit at Grandma Bellmasters. Uh, weeks on end um, at her condominium on Lake Wawasi? Is that yes. how you say Wawasi. that? Wawasi. Okay. <laughs> the couple uh, would tell their friends that Herb didn't get along because of, or didn't go along, I'm sorry, because of the business pressures. Um, later to be find out why he didn't go right. along. Yeah. Or why he didn't right. go along. Um, but behind this, this I found really interesting. And this is something they don't touch on in the, right. in the documentary either. No. Uh, something that we've we've uh, uncovered. And the fact that they have three children. Right. So behind the bedroom doors, there was very little intimacy in this marriage. Julie later admitted that she and Herb had engaged in sex only six times in the 25 years that they were married. 25 years. That was quoted from Detective uh, Vandegrift. Vandegrift. Right. Um, she she was quoted in saying that, and according to the authors of again Weinstein and Wilson, Julie never saw her husband nude. 
Herb dressed in the bathroom. Five years. Twenty-five years. Yeah. Some of us don't even want to see our spouses nude. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Herb dressed in the bathroom when it came time to go to bed. He would always put on uh, pajamas, like slipping uh, between the sheets. And it's quoted in saying that he was always ashamed of his very skinny or slender body. Um, that should have been a tip-off, I think, to Julie, the, the wife, that something wasn't right. And the, the, the investigator, Vandegrift, adds that, that that should have been a red flag. Reflecting again on those danger signals or those red flags that our mom always tells us about, you know, right. and just we just bad, bad things that were to come. Right. But she was over-trusting. Julie was an over-trusting woman who, despite their problems, put complete stock in her husband's actions. Julie um, just probably in trying so hard to reconcile their differences through her own mental state into complete uh, dependency on Herb. I think deep inside, she chose not to. To see the signs had to have she just she chose not to see the signs she and didn't i think want to and i think vandegraaff the uh the investigator she she agrees with that as yeah. well she she agrees with that and that uh may be the reason why she believes that the alibi in 1994 now this is this is something they do talk about in the documentary they have a son named eric that was playing out in the family wooded area in this backyard Mm -hmm. Um, they had 18 acres i believe but they were playing out in the backyard and he found a just a half buried a complete human skeletal just a skeleton laying um showing the gruesome discovery to his mother julie um anxiously awaiting her husband's arrival that day home you know from the shop when she showed him, you know, with curiosity, he explained it. He was monotoned when he explained it. No emotions. And he said to her that it was from, now remember, her, his father was a doctor. And he explained that his, it was from his father's um, skeleton collection. And he had stored it in their garage and buried it in the yard only after he decided to clean out the, gar- the garage. It was a simple explanation. Herb gave it to Julie. Enough said, and the subject was closed. He married in 1971, a union that produced three children. We talked about this. He founded the Save-A-Lot with his wife, Julie, the chain in 1988. Just trying to give you a timeline here. The founders of Save-A-Lot, a serial killer, Herbert Richard Herb Baumaster, born April the 7th, 1947, and then again, he committed suicide on July the 3rd, 1996, was the founder of the thrift store chain, the Save-A-Lot, and had and was an alleged serial killer from the suburban Westfield in Indiana. Um, he was well-liked in his community. Yeah. That's the thing. He played, he played the part. He played the role. He played the role because yeah. people didn't think... I mean, it, we'll get to that. I mean, this right. is a good story, so it's hard to not jump ahead, but go ahead, Sam. Okay. In uh, 1993, the police were contacted by a man claiming that a gay bar patron calling himself Brian Smart had killed a friend of his and had attempted to kill him. The, tec- the detectives told him to contact them in case he never saw the man again. In November of 1995, he called them and supplied the man's license plate. So he actually saw 
he had went back to this bar and he had saw somebody else get into this car and he got the plates. After checking the license registry, uh, Vandegrift and Wilson uh, discovered that Brian Smart was actually Herb Baumeister. So by 1996, which that explains a lot, him going to a gay bar and only having sex with his wife six times in 25 years. And Wilson discovered that Brian Smart was actually her Baumeister. By June 1996, however, Julie had become sufficiently frightened by her husband's mood swings and erratic behavior that after filing for divorce, she consented to a search. The search conducted while Baumeister was on vacation yielded the remains of 11 men. Only four were ever identified, which that blows me away how only four men. And there was no heads found. No, there was no heads found. No heads found. There was only one time that they found a skeleton. That was, or a skull was at the first one when that child found it, when their, when yes. their kid found it. That's the only time. The rest of them, no, none of the skulls were with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Panic Baumeister escaped to Ontario where he committed suicide at um, Pinery Pro- Provincial Park. In his suicide note, he described his failing marriage and business as his reason for killing himself. But never, not once, did he confess to killing anybody. Or any, or having known anything about any of those seven men found in his backyard. Wasn't the suicide note three pages three long? Three pages long is what they found. Okay. They found a three-page long suicide note. That's what I thought. Um, in addition to the murders at his estate, Baumeister is also strongly suspected of killing nine more men. Again, um, on the documentaries, they said that he could have killed up to, they, they think, up to 50 men. Mm-hmm. And maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, the bodies of whom were found in a rural area along the corridor of Interstate 70 that was between Indiana and Ohio. Um, and also between, uh, well, between Indianapolis and Columbus. Uh, Julie Baumeister told authorities that her husband made as many as 100, 100 business trips to Ohio on what he said was store business. Three years after police found piles, think about that, piles of human remains on the Indiana Horse Ranch. DNA testing had allowed investigators to identify eight men who were killed and dumped there. Police say that Herb continued to live in his facade. His marriage to Julie on its on the surface normalcy and their two Save-A-Lot stores continued um, to occupy much of their daylight time. it's just up until the mid-1990s been visible visible to others what was going on and what was what was about to manifest the strains of this sexless loveless marriage were appearing um i just i i just i feel for julie i do Mm -hmm. um Julie, people at home and in the neighborhoods were talking um, professionally. Their business began to, began to suffer as well, and I think it says later on too that we're going to talk about. But it it's hard not to jump ahead, and, right? You it know, because it's well, such an exciting story. There's so much to talk about. Yeah. Let me just let me get right back on right back on where we're at here. So, in 1994, the Save a Lots had taken a plunge. So the shoppers had declined. The bills were soaring. Can you imagine? They lived on an 18-acre mansion. And this mm-hmm. mansion, we've got pictures on the uh, the PowerPoint presentation of their mansion. Well, it's got an in-ground pool for crying Right, inside. So, yes, exactly. Not an in-ground pool outside. No, inside. Inside. Right, right, right. So so Julie tried. Uh, he, she was just tired of the bickering 
the financial dilemmas and this fairy tale, and I have parentheses up, my little fingers, life uh, that just never quite matched Cinderella. So she threatened divorce. Um, as another year opened, however, she did not act on that. Instead, she sat by and she watched her businesses decline, her marriage sour, and her husband just continued to grow stranger and stranger. And we we have seen this with other serial killers that <laughs> that they start out slow and right. then it gets stranger and more in more depth. Weird. Yes, and we've they just seen get this. a little bit more weird. Yes, their, their their antics get a little bit more out there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So at the workplace, um, Herb was ever darkening moods. Uh, were venting to his employees. He demanded grueling work and unfair attention from them, acting as if he was some sort of king who deserved to be praised. Um, he fired people who wouldn't comply and to you know to this treatment. He just said, "You're out." And his own work days. Now this is important. His own his own work days were filled full of this farceness. Um, he would disappear for hours. Employees are quoted as saying. Um, then he would return just reeking of alcohol and just barking out orders to everybody. This once tidy, wonderful stores became just a mess. And it's quoted that the employee said that there was no attention to it. Everything was just dirty. Um, one clerk said, remembers this, everything that you just looked at was just a mountain of garbage bags. It was like working in a garbage heap um almost a year had passed and uh virgil vandegrift and mary wilson had begun their search for this uh, man named brian smart and this is what his alias was when right. he would go into the gay bars was right. brian smart um his real identity and his house of mannequins <laughs> his mansion of mannequins remained a mystery that's another thing too when they were watching the documentaries uh these weird mannequins uh the guys he would bring home would comment on these weird mannequins and yeah his yeah. And of course he always told them that it, that wasn't his house that was his boss's house right right and that those mannequins were there for his boss so his boss wouldn't feel lonely now ladies which is just odd just i'm kind of speaking to the ladies y'all can't tell me that you wouldn't think it was strange if you had this huge mansion and your husband had all these mannequins <laughs> all over the house all right I'm sorry. That is just That'd be a hard thing to explain. That's too much. Um, too much. On, on July 23rd, Julie called her lawyer, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Windling, and told him to get in touch with Mary Wilson, the, the other detective. Mm -hmm. Herb was currently out of town with son Eric visiting his mother at Lake Wawasee. And she wanted to take this opportunity to tell Mary about the bones she had found in her backyard, the ones that she'd found, or her son had found. The following day after Julie's lawyer notified her, Mary Wilson drove anxiously to Fox Hollow Farms. Accompanying her were two very skeptical Hamilton County officials, uh, Captain Tom Anderson of the County Sheriff's Office and a Detective Jeff Markham. In truth, Anderson was not sure that the human remains Wilson hoped to find would turn out to be animal remains. Um, he was not too shy even to Mary's face to directly apprise the woman's suspicions as bullshit. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's, come on, that's just not an attitude to have at all. Um, Julie Baumeister, with attorney Whittling at her side, met the law enforcement people at her front door that afternoon and led them through the house to the wooded backyard. There she pointed to the spot where, the two, where two years earlier her son Eric had found a skeleton, where she said, or where she was even actually quoted as saying, it looked like somebody just laid down and died. 
is yeah. how the, is how it was was positioned. Mm-hmm. The reason she had not uh, notified the authorities until now, she claims, was because she believed what Herb told her. Uh, she said he was a pack rat and kept everything, so she figured that's what it was was her dad's was his dad's um, you know his dad's skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, she had believed her story about the bones being no more than a dissecting skeleton. His recent erratic actions, however, filled her with new doubts. The yard at first glance looked normal, um, but as the men began to kick through the low grass and patches of dirt just beyond the back patio, they encountered a bone about a foot long, charred from having been burned. There weren't sh- they weren't sure if it was human. Uh, then, they, then as their eyes focused on the area immediately around them, it quickly became apparent that those many pebbles and rocks strewn across the flat cover were not pebbles and rocks at all. Uh, but, but, uh, but fragments of bone. Lawyer Bill Whittling, watching the police, scooped up one chip and broken bone after another, now looked down at his own feet, like the evidence that followed the old, a, old adage, so obvious it's unclear, he realized in a chill that he too was standing on what resembled bone chips. Um, where the Baumeister's kids played their, their innocent child games. This was close to the house, right? Yeah, it just kept getting closer. Yeah, he kept the, burying them closer and closer to closer the back. Closer and closer to the house. Yep. Right. Okay. He would just and at the, and at one point he'd just stop burying them. He just throwing them. At one point, um, he leaned over to pick up. This is the attorney. He picked up what were were obviously human teeth pieces. Now this he's standing in this wooded area, looking down. He's picking up human teeth. They're just out there, right there in the open. Pieces of bone lay everywhere. Still, the county people on site were unconvinced that what they were gathering and taking photographs of were human. Um, She'd seen firsthand how nervous Herb had been and how he had done everything in his power to keep her off his land, including lying to Julie about their investigation. Now, she knew why. She delivered the bags of evidence to the forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki at University of Indiana for examination. He answered very fast. He says, they are human remains. They are recent and they've been buried or burned and buried. The next day, the police returned to the scene of what looked like one of the worst crime scenes Indiana had ever encountered. It began to appear to them now that Herb, Herb's whole homestead was this graveyard might contain the remains of those many young homosexuals who over several years had vanished from the streets of Indianapolis. This time, other officials joined uh, the original search party to conduct a, a thorough dig of the premises along the group was a prosecuting attorney named Sonia Learcamp and a half uh, and a half score of a, a detectives. Naraki, now this is the, the uh, forensic um, uh, pathologist, came to and two assistants, Matt Williamson and Christopher Schmidt, to perform the scientific um, exhumation. Is that how you say yeah. that? Of what was obviously a, a just a secret cemetery. The anthropological team began the hunt by placing small orange flags into the ground wherever the bone fragments would appear. In only a half an hour, they dropped nearly a hundred of these markers in the ground. Summing it up, Naraki explained it looks like a mass 
disaster scene. Like, it looks like something you would see from a plane crash. Right. That's what he was trying to explain. Right. While the dig continued into the late hours with policemen, uh, checked out the interior of the Ballmaster home, they found, again, the mannequins. mannequins. Yeah, the mannequins. <laughs> the wet bar. The pool. Just as Tony Harris, that's the eyewitness, correct? Right. The guy that was um, there with him. Right. Had described to them. However... They uncovered something that Tony didn't know. Tony hadn't seen that evening um, that Ballmaster had a semi-hidden video camera. Now, this I have not seen in any documentaries. No. I've never seen him talk about this. about this. This is so interesting that we that we uncovered this. A semi-hidden video camera that the police immediately suspected had been used to tape the strangulations. The case had just was turning into this bizarre. Just every hour that passed, it was more and more bizarre. Julie grew anxious about the safety of her son because remember, Herb has Eric right now. Mm-hmm. You know, at the at the grandma house, right. right? Okay, and was at you know her at the lake at uh, Wasop. How do you say well, that Wasi. again? Well, Wasi. I'm glad you can say <laughs> it. Um, reality started to seep in, and Julie feared that she didn't know what the limits Herb might go. Um, you know, if, especially if he found out what was happening at their home. So, a prosecutor Lair Camp and a county judge drew up a custody paper to remove the boy, which was Eric, from the father's presence. Efforts were made by Ballmaster to hold on to his son, but came to no avail. He had no reason to suspect that that uh, you know that his secret had been literally uncovered in the backyard mm. at Fox Hollow. And he figured this custody action was just a ploy by Julie uh, to counteract his latest divorce movement. So when police showed up with the proper papers to escort the child, which was Eric, home, Herb released him calmly and without menace. Back to the estate, um, plenty was happening. County investigators led by sheriff detectives uh, Kenneth Wisman were beginning to put pieces of Herb's puzzle together. Compost piles yielded heavy degrees of bones where it appeared the killer had burnt his corpses under piles of leaves and garbage. They interviewed Tony Harris. Now, that's that, um, that's that guy again that yeah. saw him at the... That he actually was at the he was house. With him. He was with him. That's right. Yeah. Who told them that Herb had an obsession with strangulation and sexual... Asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. A big question um, they had, how could Herb have strangled and burned and buried these men without his family's knowledge? Was answered in an interview with Julie herself. She explained that sometimes, for several months at a time, especially in the summer, she and her children visited um, the the widow Bellmaster, which would have been Herb's mother, right? Yeah, Yeah. leaving Herb alone. Um, Balancing the times... Of the victim's disappearances with the period that she was gone, her, I mean, he would do these things while she was away. And yeah. if she was away for months at a time, he had plenty of time. Plenty of time. Plenty of time to things, bring them back. Yeah. Hide things. He had plenty yep. of time. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the uh, excavations in the backyard went on without pause. The number of diggers had swelled to about 60 volunteers. Uh, mostly it was off-duty policemen and firemen. The first couple of days, researchers had produced an amazing 5,500 bones, teeth and bone fragments, which, according to Naraki, made up four bodies. That's a lot of bones. Um, After they had combed the entire 18 acres of the Baumeister's property, 
Members of the team were soon to learn that their search was far from over. Neighbors from an adjacent farm crossed into the police cordon to uh, inform them that they had found evidence of yet more bones next door. He was going next door. I mean, his his property was getting so full, he went next door. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they led investigators to an area cut through with a drainage ditch that separated the two properties. Here in this ditch were so many human ribs, vertebrae, and spines that one of the officials murmured, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. Uh, the bones were so numerous and more intact than on the Baumeister land that they actually stuck up visibly from the mud. Shovels drew up uh, not only more bones, but with them, cans of Miller Genuine Draft Beer, which was Herb's favorite beer, and handcuffs that had probably bound the victims in death. By the time ex- exhumation of this area ended, um, and by the time that the 140 bones were estimated in those belonging to another seven men, the mortal count had risen to immediately to estimately uh, 11 men killed. It would be September before the anthropologist were able to identify some of the bodies. Disappointingly, only four, which I'm still having trouble with that, and each of these gathered from dental records. The four positively identified victims' names were uh, Roger Goodlett, uh, Stephen Hale, Richard Hamilton, and Manuel uh, Resendez. Roger Goodlett's mother is the one that got all this rolling. Yes. Because if it hadn't been for her... Thank the Lord for her. She, the, I mean, this would have all went undetected. Mm-hmm. And, and would she have wanted been her sad. son back. Well, she wanted, she loved her son. Yeah, she loved her son. You know, she I mean, her son back. and none of this would have been in motion had she not mm-hmm. opened her mouth. Uh, it says this day the remains of other body of others found at Fox Hollow Farms wait to be identified. And I don't, I still think they've not been identified. Correct? As far as I know, no. So this th- this case is, <laughs> which is which is amazing. This case is still open. Mm-hmm. And all because of. The, well, the what sus- I'm about to yeah, yeah talk about now, is, is yeah, dead, so. right. So, so the big question is, but where is her Baumeister? Um, he had, he had left Lake uh, Wasasi, and like his uh, victims faded into the mist. The only clue the police had from Brad Baumeister, which was Herb's brother, uh, he called Detective Wisman on June the 29th, five days after the police found the graveyard behind the house. Brad told the police that his older brother, Herb, uh, had phoned him from a little town in Michigan, uh, Fenville, saying that he was on a business trip and he needed money. He needed money quickly. After Brad sent the cash, he became, um, he became aware of the goings-on at Fox Hollow. And notified the authorities immediately. At best, um, can be determined that Herb, in his 1989 gray Buick, left Wawasee and headed north, arriving at Fenville around the 28th of June. The next day, he reached Port Haran, where, again, he phoned Brad again, which is his brother, asking for more money. By this time, Brad had spoken to Wisman, which is the detective, who asked Brad to tell his brother, should he call again, to tell him to call the police, that they wanted to talk to him. You know, it was a, it was, it was a futile request, but he figured it was worth trying. At this point, a fugitive had entered Canada, and Weinstein and Wilson reported in their books, um, Ontario um, Provincial Police told the Indianapolis Star they believed Herb arrived in Sanaria on June the 30th, 30th, spending several days there before driving east 
along Lake Huron shoreline to Grand Bend, Ontario. There in Pinery Park on the evening of June 3rd, Herb would take his last life, his own. He put a 357 Magnum revolver barrel to his forehead and pulled the trigger. The note he left behind and it just talked about his decision about his failing businesses, his um, just his marriage falling apart, but there was never a mention of the skeletons left behind in Westfield. Instead, his final words on this three-page suicide document explain that he would now eat a peanut butter sandwich, his favorite snack, and then he would go to sleep. The evening before he died, a Canadian trooper had stopped him to ask why he was sleeping in his car under a nearby bridge. He told her that he was merely a tourist passing through and he was just grabbing a moment of rest. At this time, she noted some luggage and what looked like a pile of videotapes in the back seat. Now, we're going to talk about this, but yeah. where, where are these videotapes? I mean, and, and were these the videotapes of the murders that he committed at the pool area in, you know, on Fox Hollow Farm? The, the private investigator asked, Virgil uh, Vandegrift asked this question, but, you know, we'll never know. For after he died, there was no sign of the videotapes on him, nor in his car. He must have tossed them in the lake before he shot himself. Um, you know, it's, I, I know that the, 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 Detective is, is quoted in saying that perhaps it was best, but I have to wonder if it would have helped to identify these young men. It would have, yeah. It, it, would, it could have helped to identify Anything them. would have helped. Yeah, Anything definitely. other than just, you know, nothing. Right, right. The testing also determined that the bodies of 11 people, not seven, as previously believed, were scattered in a wooded area at Herb's, uh, Herb Baumeister's Fox Island Farm. Baumeister believed to be responsible for the slaying for the slayings, committed suicide 10 days after the remains were found on his property in 1996. Hamilton County Sheriff uh, Sergeant Eddie Moore said, Investigators now have the difficult task of trying to identify the remaining three victims. The problem is we're not sure who they are, so we have no names to even start on. No comparison, no DNA samples, more told AB, APBnews.com today. The eight men whose bodies were identified through DNA testing were reported missing and samples of relatives' DNA were available, he said. The victims' identified identi identities were determined through, uh, through tests that University of Indianapolis forensic anthropologist Stephen Naraki performed on bones and teeth, Moore said. DNA testing found the remains of 11 people on the Indiana ranch that Julie gave permission to search. Hamilton County Sheriff uh, investigators found the human remains at Fox Hollow Farms after going there on June 24, 1996, during a police investigation that began 20 miles away in Indianapolis. An Indianapolis detective was working on some missing people, and her investigation kept coming back to Baumeister's name. That's what Moore said uh, from the sheriff's from the, the sheriff investigator. Uh, he talked to Baumeister's wife, Julie, when they went out to his home, and she gave investigators permission to search the property, Moore said. They found bones and body parts covered with leaves on top of the ground in a wooded area 50 to 60 feet behind Baumeister's house, he said. It was mostly bones. All the flesh and whatnot was eaten away. There was little in the way of artifacts like watches and clothing. Herb was in his mid-30s and 
ran an Indianapolis thrift shop with his wife, and this was Julie. He went to Canada the following week and shot himself to death on July the 4th, 1996. Investigators say that they are unsure why what Herb's motive was, but they do believe that he acted alone. Um, it's hard to say what was going on in his head. Most of these men, um, most of all of them, they frequented the gay or an alternative lifestyle in communities in, 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 in Indianapolis. Dental records enabled investigators to identify only four of the um, slaying victims not, uh, not long after the remains were found. Then last year, Hamilton County officials contributed $15,000 to $20,000 um, just to help with the DNA cost. Um, DNA testing on the remains. Hamilton County Sheriff's investigators released the remains of the families of the eight identified victims on June the 8th. However, Sheriff Joe Cook waited a week before releasing the news um, of the test results. He wanted the families to have time for a private ceremony to have some closure. On June 11, 1999, Herb, uh, Herbert Baumeister, remains of nine young men found buried on the Hamilton County estate of, of Baumeister are being returned to the victims' families. Investigators believe Baumeister picked up young men for homosexual liaisons, then murdered them, burned the bodies, and burned the remains. June 16, 1999, Herb Baumeister investigators announced that DNA tests show Herbert Baumeister burned the body, buried the bodies of 11 men behind his house near Westfield not eight as it was previously determined. Dr. Stephen Noraki, a forensic anthropologist from the University of Indianapolis, said 25 bone and tooth samples were submitted for DNA testing through some of the samples, did, though some of the samples did not yield enough DNA for uh, testing. Sheriff's Detective Bill Clifford said a total of 11 DNA signatures were found among 19 specimens. Of the three still unidentified victims, Noraki said they had enough DNA it's just a question of finding someone to match them with. What a story. Yeah, wow. So let's talk about, let me go back. I want to talk about that Hamilton Police Department. Mm -hmm. uh, Captain Thomas Anderson and Detective Jeff Markham. Mm -hmm. What do you think about them? Um, one thing that uh, kind of threw me off after watching uh, a documentary on this Um is that they that they didn't charge him. They let him go. They let him go. They let him go because they said, and I quote, we didn't know what we had here. Um, that threw me for a loop. You you uncover seven bodies, and or, you, you got all these skeletal remains, but you don't know what you have. And it's been verified that they're human remains, yeah. too. And, and, I mean, I've seen people get charged for less. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and, and get put in jail. And then, then it discovered that they were a serial killer, you know. Had they charged him when the cop in Canada found him? Yes. I guess they don't call them cops. What do they I, call them? I, I, they call them something. But, yeah. Uh, if if they if that that uh, female officer had found, or they had charged him in Hamilton County, mm -hmm. when they found him in Canada, she would have known yep. that he was wanted in America. Yep. She would have known. Because she ran his plates. Yep. She knew his name. Mm -hmm. She knew who he was. Yep. She had no idea no. that he was. No, she had that, no idea who was, she had. That, yeah. No. She had no idea. Um, and that just blew my mind. 
I mean, you know, they, they, they discovered Ted Bundy over speeding. <laughs> he took off from the cops. That's how he got caught. Mm-hmm. And this guy, they dug up. They had more to go on than they did him, and they let him go. Right. Still blew my mind. What about the bodies that they found in Preble County, just uh, just south of us, um, Preble County? That was something else that was shown in another documentary that I had seen. Um, there was four bodies that they found there, and all killed, and, and the M.O. was the same. Um, they found skeletal remains. Um, and they figured they found out that these people were from Indiana, and they were brought over to Ohio mm-hmm, to and dump. being dumped. And this was during the '80s, and this was when he was supposedly taking his business trips, mm-hmm. if you remember right, to Ohio. Eighty-nine to ninety. Eighty-nine right? to yeah, mm-hmm. between eighty-nine and ninety, there was four bodies found in in Preble County, which is pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then, didn't you have something that was close to home? Yeah, yeah. So I I talked to mom about this and. And she remembers this as well. Um, there was a body found on Weaver Station Road uh, down just a half a mile from my childhood home and my actual home. And now it's not been confirmed, you right. know, that this is a body that was dumped by him. But the M.O. is the exact the same. same. It's the exact same. And it's around that same time, about 95, 96, which mm-hmm. that, went, that would have been the time where he was dumping bodies mm-hmm. in rural areas in Ohio. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's probably a, you could per, it's a good indication that it was probably one of his bodies. Could have been. Yeah, yeah I probably could have crossed. Up. I could have crossed paths with yeah. him and didn't even know. But unfortunately, we'll never know because no, because he took the easy. He took his own. He, yeah, he, took, he took his took own the easy life. Way out. Yeah, I don't know if it was easy way out, but yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. So what about Julie not knowing? What do you think about now that? Now that I'm having an issue with because what do you think let me about tell you, if, if I had mannequins in the house, Sam, would you, you would you think you, I was a little strange? If, if you found mannequins, in y'all my, could come to our house right no, now. We got no mannequins in this house. No, no except got, for Halloween decorations. Yeah, and we put them away after Halloween. Exactly. But um, <laughs> you, if I mean, if you go into what's let's just call let's say my man cave, and I've got all these mannequins sitting around in there, I think she would get. I think Tish would get a little bit. Just a little. I mean, there there'd be a little something, you know. She'd have a few questions, I think. I'm out. And you need to tell me <laughs> that she didn't have any kind of questions for him. I mean, the fact that they'd only had sex six times in 25 years, no questions. Um, I think there would have been. I think there would be a lot of questions. I mean, but, and that's man or woman. I mean, that would there would be a lot of questions if if your wife didn't have sex with you for only six times in 25 years. Right. I mean, you, there'd be questions. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't I, know. That just that kind of blew me away too. Well, and and the, the videotapes. Yeah, that was something that was not touched on in any of the documentaries that we no. saw. Um, and this does not surprise me because a lot of uh, serial killers they like to um, have souvenirs, if you will, trophies, trophies that they're called um, of their killings, mm-hmm. and. Again, when they found him in Canada, there was the tapes. There was the tapes. There was the they tapes. They didn't hold on to him. No. And they would have had. There would have been their evidence. Wow. Yeah. There would have been their wow. evidence. I so agree. Yeah. So I think you know we've kind of wrapped this up. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, wow, this was a big story. It was a it was exciting story to go yeah. through. Definitely. It was, uh, there was a lot, a lot of info in this. There was a lot going on. There was a lot definitely. of a lot of things happening in here. So. Yeah. Um, 
It's the, also, fir- it's the first day of fall. Also, it's the first day of fall. It's the first day of fall. What a, what, what a beautiful day What a beautiful time for me. And uh, and I know a few <laughs> of you others out there that listen. Uh, this is one of your favorite time of the years, too. Yeah. Uh, like I saw... Halloween's uh, coming. Oh, Halloween's, Halloween's coming. That's my favorite coming. time of the year. Um, hey, can I'm, we give a shout out to Liz? Yes, because uh, I read one of her posts the <laughs> other day on Facebook. Say hi to Liz. <laughs> on Facebook hey, that sweetie. said... Uh, her favorite day of the summer is the last day. Yeah, I love and that. And I love that too. I, I basically I told it. Tish the same I love thing. It. Um, I love so it. So yeah, I mean, you know, our holidays coming up uh, yeah. um, in October. We're going to have a few different things that we're going to be doing. Yeah, ghost stories, we've got mostly. some ghost stories coming. So from yeah. Ohio and yeah, yeah. some stuff. So that So it should be exciting. Um, yeah. But we're going to, like I said, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Um, just uh, thanks for listening, as always. Yeah, and um, thank and thanks to our our uh, our son Paul. Yeah. Um, Hodson for uh, doing our music. Mm-hmm. He, he takes care of all of our music and mm-hmm. is an associate producer of the yep. show as well. We just want to give a shout out to him too. So until next time, this has been Sammy's Midnight Hour.